Let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 5 this morning. We continue in our series on uh, evangelism, what that looks like in the world today, uh, what it looks like in the New Testament, how do we apply that. Don't forget that next week James will be here from Chelsea. We'll talk about his plant and how they have um, reached out to the community in Chelsea and what a difference that has made and, and ways that they have done it, ways that they're applicable here. Um, we think of, of church planners and, um, you know, they show up with nobody. So they, they've got to go out and find them. And that's the whole purpose is evangelism, to reach out in the community uh, and how to do it. Now, we're an established church. This church goes back well over 200 years. Um, and the Lord does not expect us to sit here on our laurels and do nothing. He expects us to do the same thing church planners do. Go out, interact with the non-believers, demonstrate the love of Christ, and share that in word and deed. So if you're able, would you stand with me as we go to Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. Our Heavenly Father, we ask that you would open our eyes to your words and your Holy Spirit to give us understanding. That they would not simply be these words on a page, but they would penetrate our hearts. Uh, they would cause us to evaluate our lives and what we do and how important the gospel is to, to us and what we are called to do in response to that. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is God's inspired word for us today, so please be seated. <clears throat> Never doubt the power of Sunday school, the power of those little songs. I mean, we all could sing this little light of mine. We all know the motions. And, and, and you know, and, and we, we learned that as, as little kids. And we thought, oh, this is really cool. And we had fun. And, and we didn't fully understand all the theological ramifications of it. But we, we got the gist of it. Okay? And then we got a little older and we kind of put our hand up like this and we didn't go through the motions. Now that we're, we're much older, we understand the theological ramifications and we can hold our finger up again like this. Don't let Satan it out. I'm going to let it shine. Won't hide it under a bushel, no. I'm going to let it shine. And, and, and sometimes we let it shine by simply our lives, by the fact that Christ dwells within us, we have so filled our heart and mind with the things of God's word that our light shines. Let me give you an example. President Woodrow Wilson was telling, told this story about the time he went to a barber shop. Okay. I'm quoting him. I was in a very common place. I was sitting in a barber chair when I became aware that a personality had entered the room. A man had come quietly in upon the same errand as myself to have his hair cut and sat in the chair next to me. Every word the man uttered, though it was not in the least didactic, showed a personal interest in the man who was serving him. I purposely lingered in the room after he had left and noticed the singular effect that his visit had brought upon the barbershop 
They talked in hushed tones. They didn't know his name, but they knew that something had elevated their thoughts. And I left that place as I would have left the place of worship. The visitor's name was D.L. Moody. Okay. Nobody knew who he was. Wilson found that out later. D.L. Moody. See, being Christ wherever we are, living Christ so that our lives influence those around us, proclaiming Christ in word and deed. These are things at the heart of being salt and light. The salt and light discourse, if you have your Bible open, you can see it structurally comes right after the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are listed almost as bullet points, uh, verses 2 through 10, uh, 2 through 11 there. And then you get some elaboration on the characteristic and the quality of the life of one who conforms it to the teachings of Christ as laid out for us in the Beatitudes. Jesus pronounces a blessing on those who live this way in the Beatitudes, and now he's showing how true believers live out the Beatitudes in purposeful, godly living. And what's most notable about the Beatitudes is that those aren't qualities the world really values. Those aren't things that the, the world puts a lot of um, uh, emphasis on as far as being successful, as making an impact in the world. The world glorifies power and, and dominion, uh, physical strength, status, force, class, all those types of things. And, and of course, Jesus is, is elevating humility and, and meekness and purity and even being ready for persecution for righteousness' sake. Not just because you're obnoxious, but because you're being righteous. The qualities, the Beatitudes, are the polar opposite of political clout, worldly power. So in other words, Jesus is saying the blessed are the people who are willing to be oppressed and disenfranchised for righteousness' sake. And there's the kicker, for righteousness' sake. Peacemakers, not violent protesters. Poor in spirit, not proud. People who are persecuted, not the powerful within society. Then you ask the question, well, well, gee... How are we going to change society if we don't have any power? Okay, how can I go about and change a society so that it looks holier, it, it, Christ has more influence in it, if, if I don't have any power in the world? Paul answers that in two places that I'm going to list. 1 Corinthians 1, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. That's the gospel. And then, of course, in Romans For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first and then to the Greek. Those 11 men who went out after Pentecost were some of the least powerful people in the world. Fishermen, tax collectors. I mean, they just just were nobodies, really, except they had been changed by the power of Christ. They were obedient to the teachings of Christ. Therefore, they were able to go in the power of the Spirit and to change the world. So this type of thought is consistent with Jesus' teaching throughout the New Testament. He said, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first must be last, or the slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to serve, be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. So it's important to notice, if you look at the clauses here that start 
verse 13 and 14, you are the light of the world, you are, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. Those are not commands, those are facts. Okay, That's not imperative language there. It's not a command for you to go out and be salt. It is the fact that you are salt, if you're a believer. He's not calling us to go out and be light. The fact is you are already light. That is the fact of Christ. Now, Christ cautions us about losing our flavor and the ability to flavor those around us. And how do we lose our flavor of Christ? Well, we do so by disobedience. We do so by not filling our hearts and minds with the word, by not exercising the, uh, the means of grace, worship and study and prayer and those things, by adhering to the world. That's how we lose our saltiness. When we look just like the world, we are no longer flavoring the world. The world has so consumed us that we've lost that ability to change it. In fact, the verse 13, the Greek literally says, the only salt of the earth is you. The only salt of the earth is you. And we've said this many, many times. We are the only ones with the truth, not we here in this room, but Christians. Okay? We are the only ones who know Christ. We are the only ones who have the answer. We're the only ones that can see the house is on fire. We're the only ones who have the power and ability to go get them and, and declare them the truth. It is God's job to save them, to change their hearts. But we are the only salt of the earth. Now, there are other types of salts that are out there trying to flavor the world with their particular doctrine, their particular view. Uh, of course, every religion thinks it is right, and uh, you know, the Islam has a salt, Buddha has a salt, all those types of things. We're the only salt. Everything else is fake. Everything else will lead them farther away from the Lord. The world will not have the flavor of Christ unless those who are believers flavor the world. Okay, Unless it comes from us. We have to live in the world while being distinct from the world if we're to fulfill the plan that Jesus has laid out. Now, we can't be corrupted by the world, which is hard to do because you're living in it. And it's so easy to, to just get used to certain things and then that becomes the norm without ever seeing that that's contrary to what scripture says we have to remain obedient we can't swallow the morality or the immorality or the amorality that permeates much of uh, the media everyday life the governance we can't embrace materialism we can't embrace self-centeredness that randy is the center of my world it can't be that way we can't embrace the philosophies of the world they're there as we saw last week Last week with Paul at Athens, the week before. They are there to be used. They are there to be used to point people to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But by embracing the gospel, we're swimming upstream. Let's face it, this is the way it is. We're swimming upstream, even in this country. This week I was rereading a book uh, entitled Total Truth. And uh, it's a great book, great insight there. And the author traced much of the philosophy that permeates society, the me-centered philosophy, okay? Uh, the egocentric philosophy, uh, I mean, you can trace it back to the garden if you want, but in today's world, how did it come to have such a hold on society? And one of the starting points, the author says, is the Swiss philosopher Rousseau. 
I think it's Jean-Jacques Rousseau, Swiss philosopher. And I'm quoting here. His writings inspired Robespierre, Marx, Lenin, Mussolini, Hitler, Mao, Pol Pot. Rousseau said the way to grasp the essence of human nature was to hypothesize what we would be like if we were stripped of all social relationships, morals, laws, customs, traditions of civilization itself. This original pre-social condition he called the state of nature. In it, all that exists are lone, disconnected, autonomous individuals whose sole motivating force is the desire for self-preservation. If our true nature is to be autonomous individuals, then society is contrary to our nature. Because society is calling me to be something different than what I want to be. Okay? Society is artificial. Society is confining. Society is oppressive. Rousseau's most influential work, The Social Contract, opens with the famous line, man is born free and everywhere he is in chains. Okay, so if you had philosophy 101 in, in college, you probably heard that. He did not mean the chains of political oppression as we might think of. For Rousseau, the real, and this is the heart of it, the really oppressive relationships were personal ones like marriage, family, church, and the workplace. If we can be free of those oppressive things, then I can really be who I am. Uh, and, and theologically, if I can be free of those constraints, my sinful nature will really shine, okay? And it's in there, baby, let me tell you. And what would liberate us from this oppression, the oppression of marriage and family and church and workplace? Rousseau's a- answer, the state. The state would destroy all social ties, releasing the individual from loyalty to anything except itself. Rousseau spelled out his vision with this phrase, each citizen would then be completely independent of his fellow man and absolutely dependent upon the state. No wonder his philosophies set the minds of Marx and Lenin and Hitler and Mao and Pol Pot thinking about what society should look like. This is what we are up against. That is what so desperately needs the salt and the light of Christ. All right, so that's just to get us going. I'm going to focus mostly on the salt here in this passage because it is salt. One of the attributes of salt is that it causes thirst. Okay, some of you can remember maybe in football or basketball uh, practice when you were in junior high or high school and out would come the salt pills. Okay? And I never understood why. I was already thirsty. Okay? And this was before Gatorade you know, it came about. So, so those days. But salt creates a thirst. The world we live in will only end hunger and thirst for righteousness if we are salty enough. If we, because we are the salt, the only salt of the earth. If we have so flavored the world with the love, compassion, and joy of Christ, then and only then will they turn their lives from self-aggrandizement and self-fulfillment to Christ. So salt causes thirst. That's the first one. and I believe that's the main idea here that Jesus has in mind as he talks about its savor um, in some of the other translations. Remember, Jesus had just blessed in verse 5, chapter 5, verse 6, 
Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. It doesn't say hunger and thirst for self-fulfillment. It doesn't hunger and thirst for uh, uh, something other than the family unit. Uh, it, it says hunger and thirst for righteousness. They're the ones that will be satisfied. So the presence, as I'm just quoting again, the presence of conscientiously godly people in society will have the natural effect of arousing an appetite for God and a thirst for righteousness. Just like if you go like that and put your finger in the salt and go, take it in again, pretty soon you're going to want to drink. That's what we're to be in society. We're to be that salt that people taste and see from our lives, and all of a sudden they're, they're hungering and thirsting for what we have. What is it in your life that makes you this way? How are you capable of, of, of such peace and calmness in the midst of this chaos? They want to know. It's the gospel of Christ. Jesus is talking about influence. He's saying, you whose lives are characterized by the attributes in the Beatitudes, you are the salt, you are the light, and you're placed in this world at this exact time, right now, in this exact place, Huntsville, doing the things that you do in your workplace, in your leisure time, uh, hanging out with friends, in your family. You are here for this purpose, to salt their lives with the gospel of Christ. You think, man, I just thought I was living life. Well, you're living life with the purpose that God has here. Not every believer's job is to influence the world. We're not all Billy Graham's, Okay. You talk about evangelism and you think, well, we're going to do big, big, you know, stadium events. I'm not doing stadium events. He did those. Other people do those. What has the Lord gifted you to do? You say, I'm pretty shy. I only talk like talking to one or two people at a time. Then, then do it that way. Influence one or two at a time. Your neighborhood, your workplace, your particular piece of Huntsville. In John 17, Jesus said, I want you in the world, but not of the world. I've sent you to the world, but don't love the world. So how can believers be in the world and not of the world, sent to the world, but not permitted to love those things or to be influenced by those things? First Peter says, you're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, a people of his own you belong to him and as ambassadors he has placed you here ambassadors for the king for what purpose have we been shown what purpose have we been chosen in order that you should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light that's why we're chosen that's why we're set apart g campbell morgan said Jesus, looking out over the multitudes of his day, saw the corruption and the disintegration of life at every point. He saw its spoilation, and because of his love of the multitudes, he knew the thing they needed most was salt, in order that the corruption would be arrested. Salt, that the corruption would be arrested. Beware lest your salt lose its flavor, the Puritan said. Great pressures are exerted by the world to entice us into a situation of compromise with man-centered values and ways and ends of the world. 
Our power to influence the world for good lies in our resolve to be faithful to our God and our Savior at all costs. When do you stop being salt? When you look like the world. How do I look like the world? I stop doing the things I'm supposed to, to grow in Christ. I stop holding fast to his word and his teaching. Yeah, but all of society says this is right. I know scripture says this is right, but everywhere else says this is right. You have to stand on this. Because if you don't, you've lost your saltiness. And you're just like the world. Your light is under the bushel. Secondly, salt also preserves. It's how I cure bacon. Okay? People say, well, Rand, what's your recipe for curing bacon? Lots of salt. Okay? All you have to do is read the uh, Horatio Hornblower series or, or anything about sailing and, and like that. And what they would do is they'd put a big barrel and they'd dump a bunch of salt in the bottom. Then they'd put the pork in. Then they'd layer with salt and then pork and salt and pork and salt. And it would preserve it for, from what I hear in those books, years. Okay? The people were pulling out salt pork that was like that they were glad to have it glad to have it yeah okay christians in the midst of an evil self-centered society have the same effect of preserving righteousness in the same way that salt preserves food god came to abraham said i'm going to destroy sodom and gomorrah and abraham said well what if i can find 50 righteous people and god said okay i'll hold back what about 40 okay i'll hold back what about, and, and he says, no, 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 I'm sorry. What if I can get 10 righteous people? God said, I'll, I'll, I'll hold back. He couldn't find 10 righteous people, okay? The preserving had left Sodom. You see it in Lot's life, Lot's wife especially, okay? The preserving ability comes in three main forms in Scripture. Our, our preserving ability in society. One is our own conscience, our own self-restraint, okay? You know, in the old cartoons, you got the angel on one side, it looks like me, and the devil on one side, it looks like me. And the angel is saying, no, Rand, don't do it. It's not going to be good for you. And the devil is saying, yeah, do it. It's going to be fun. It's going to be great. And, and, but our conscience, we all have a conscience. Genesis chapter 3, they knew right from wrong. Romans 1, men are without excuse, for the knowledge of God is clearly laid out before them. We have a conscience. That conscience is informed by Scripture. The more it is informed by Scripture, the more we adhere to what it says. The second item is family. The second item of constraint within society of evil is a stable family. It's one of the most important building blocks of society. Someone once described the role of the family as multi-generational morality and wisdom with instruction and discipline in love. Okay? Don't put the fork in the outlet. Okay? It may require a smack on the hand. That's just the way it is. Okay? Whew. I love you. I'm going to smack you. Okay? That's, and, it's, and, of course, the great line, it's going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. Well, I never understood that until I became a parent. But you have to. Hebrews is clear. The father who does not love his son does not discipline his son. Discipline is involved in love. Okay? If you can devalue or destroy the individual conscience and the family, you can destroy society. It's that simple. The third form of restraint uh, laid out in, in biblically for us is Romans 13, the civil magistrates, uh, kings, presidents, elected officials, things like that. They do carry the power of the sword, 
um, and, and that office, and we are to obey them until they what? Until they diverge from Scripture. When they diverge from Scripture and the clear teachings of God, we're not obligated to obey them. Now, it may send us to prison if we don't obey them, obey them but that's the way it works. Okay? So unless we see in some, uh, you know, they have the power to constrain evil by the exercise of the judiciary, by the exercise in our world, uh, police, uh, trials, uh, penitentiaries, things like that. And, of course, you see that in the cities that don't exercise those things, who aren't arresting people. They're propagating evil. They propagate evil. So Christians are to be salt and to have a positive impact. That's plain and simple, okay? And our impact goes far beyond what society thinks is even possible when we live according to the Beatitudes. The church must have a preserving effect on society and influence it. Unless, If we don't, society is just going to run headlong into evil. Look at the societies that have gotten rid of the church. Okay, we go back to Rousseau and that list of individuals, Hitler and um, Lenin and those guys. One of the first things they did was corrupt or get rid of the church, gets rid of that preserving influence of godliness in society. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote, What saved England from the revolution that destroyed France in the late 18th century was the revival that came upon our nation." Masses of English men and women came to Christ, and the moral standard of the nation rose. Parliament passed acts because of the number of Christians in the nation that otherwise would never have made it into law. Who pretty much single-handedly got rid of the English slave trade? William Wilberforce. Why? Because he became a Christian and said, this cannot stand. And for years and years and years, he battled in Parliament until finally they stopped the slave trade. And it basically killed him, okay, that effort. Jesus was saying any society, no matter how corrupt, can be blessed and influenced for good by the preservation of this group right here. By the preservation action of the church. But only if we hold fast to the word of God. Look at verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and praise you. No. And give glory to your Father in heaven. They see us living in conformity to the word. They see our works of holiness and righteousness and they give glory to the Father. One thing else about the light The only way that the light of Christ cannot shine in your life is if you purposely hide it. Purposely dim that light. Those who profess Christ as Lord and Savior but seek to hide that profession don't really profess it. Don't really believe it. A secret Christian is an oxymoron. A secret Christian is an oxymoron. Today, less than 25% of Americans attend church regularly. Regularly would be two or more times a month. Okay, At the current rate, regular church attendance is projected to drop to 12% by 2050. That's what? 28 years? I still might be alive by then. Okay, 
But that's a drop. You see that. That's the trend. It's going down. Less and less people are coming to church. So the place of evangelism is becoming more and more the marketplace, the place where, where the mission field is growing is our workplace. You say, well, I can't share the gospel in the workplace. I mean, they'd fire me. This, we can't do it. Well, how do you share the gospel? How are you light? How are you salting the ground with the things of Christ? That's, that's really what we have been working on the last few weeks. We're not talking about going door to door, knocking on strangers' doors and asking them about, uh, do you know the four spiritual laws and do you want to become a Christian? We're talking about salting the ground in which we live. Salting our friends, our neighbors, the people we work with, letting the light of Christ shine out of us, influencing those around us in that way, and being ready when they go, no, what is it about you? Well, let me tell you who Jesus Christ is. Let me show you in my life and how he has worked here. Let me take from the gospel the truth of salvation in Christ alone. You who are working, you go five, six days a week, eight, ten hours each day with those people. Think about it. Is that more time you spend with your spouse? Yeah, probably. You're spending with them. How do you influence them? Now, it doesn't matter how good or how bad your pastor is. It doesn't matter how lovely the church music is. It doesn't matter how good the kids' programs are because less and less people are coming into churches you're the ones who will be the salt of Christ in your workplace and influence non-believing friends for Christ. Whether it is your workplace, whether it is the gym, whether it is uh, other places that you spend time, maybe you go down to Hardy's for coffee every morning. Okay, Are you influencing them for Christ or are they influencing you for the world? One of the things we have to remember is that that world out there doesn't really know how much they need Christ. They know there's longing in their hearts, and they've sought to fill it in many different ways, but those things don't fill your heart. Augustine said, Our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. We're the salt. We have the answer. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, what a great opportunity for us to go and live the things of Christ in those, in the, in the, around the lives of the people we spend a lot of time with at work or in our leisure activities. Help us to see that, that this is the calling on the Christian. This is the Christian life, to live out the things of Christ, to live out those attitudes of the Beatitudes. To salt the world around us. To let the light of Christ shine in our lives, in our words, and in our deeds. That you would use even people like us, frail and feeble, mistake prone. You would use the likes of us to be the light of Christ. To be the salt. To flavor the world to create in them a thirst for holiness and righteousness, that you would use us in such a way. Lord, remind us that's when we're weak, then we're made strong by your work within us. 
Help us see in our neighbors, in the people we spend time with, in the people we work with. Help us see how we can salt the ground there. Create the thirst for Christ. Shine the light of Christ into their lives. And Lord, help us to be ready when they ask us those questions. Help us to be ready when the door is open and we have the opportunity to, to care for them and serve them with the things of Christ and also to share the things of Christ that we know how one becomes a Christian, that we know it is your grace and your grace alone. It is your power to come into our lives and change us from an enemy to a son. Those who receive the full inheritance that you have in store for us. Help us to see this Christ. Help us to declare Christ. Help us to demonstrate our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.